Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports Podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport. Uh, my name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. And for those of you that listen to us on a regular basis, you will know that we are three episodes into season five. So five years of us doing this uh, amazing podcast. And thank you for all your support out there to our patron supporters and to our Twitter involvement people who are getting involved in some of the discussions that we have on this podcast. Always fascinating to hear from you. So today we've got a very interesting interview with a gentleman who has written a book all about drugs, particularly in the South African scenario. But uh, even though we know that most of our listeners are based overseas, we felt that uh, there was a lot of international relevance around what this uh, book is all about. And uh, some of the stories that come out of it are quite extraordinary. And some of the examples we feel are probably global in, in many different ways. But mm. before we get on to that, uh, Professor Ross Tucker has got some caught my eyes, which uh, he wants to get into. Yeah, just one this week. It's been a really busy work week. And so there's a whole bunch of these sitting in patron. And I've replied <laughs> to some of you, but I'm making my way slowly through a backlog of emails that developed over the f festive season. So I apologize for the delays, but I'll get there eventually. But there's some really interesting ones. Chris Froome's VO2 max test, which I want to look into in a bit more detail before I comment, lest I get something wrong. <laughs> uh, there have been a few others about studies that have caught your eye, like, like, well, like we featured last week. But one thing that caught my eye, and that's the one I want to talk about today, is that the UFC, who you'll know is the main Ultimate body fighting championship right, that delivers mixed martial arts in the United States, is <laughs> embarking on a new league called Power Slap. Now, I've watched this so that you don't have to, but I'm but, going to post... But you should watch it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to post an article that I came across last night on Sports Illustrated written by John Wertheim. He's a really good writer. The article's called, I Embraced MMA, but Slap Fighting, What Are We Doing Here? And so it's it's a it's an appraisal of where MMA and UFC came from over the round from 2001 and how it grew, how initially there was this public resistance, like people fighting in a cage and trying to literally knock one another out, potentially kill each other. Now that hasn't happened, although some of the injuries in the sport are pretty severe. But he talks about how over time that became accepted and it's now m largely mainstream, some fights being shown on, on national television channels. Yep. But what they're now doing is they're embarking on this thing called power slap which is comes from slap fighting and the name pretty much tells you what it is imagine you know when we finish our rides on a friday sometime we end up at the high table at the bar and so let's say it's a clock face you're at 12 i'm at six we stand facing off against one another and i'm going to slap you on the face as hard as i can and it's one for one and there are three <laughs> in total so each person gets to slap the other one three times as hard as possible I'll post a I'll post a YouTube video that I found last night of some. Let's, I can't let's call deny them. that it's great to watch. Well, <laughs> I hate that I like it. It's it's cringe. I cringe it's when I watch. Yeah. It's cringeworthy, and like I flinch mm. every time they hit one another. Because mm. so what's happening here 
is you're supposed to use the palm of your hand open to hit the guy on the face and you win through points for the quality of your slaps or by knockout. Now, a knockout by definition is a concussion. Mm. So that the purpose of this quote-unquote sport is to cause concussion to win it. <laughs> if you, you don't win it, I suppose you can win it via points, but you're winning points by getting closer and closer to concussion anyway. So the whole premise here is how can I deliver a concussion to a guy who is defenseless? He's yeah. not allowed to do anything in defense. Where it makes That's different from MMA, MMA and UFC boxing. At least there, you can rely on your own skill and evasive maneuvering and so forth to defend yourself. Here, you basically have to keep your jaw up and your head steady. No flinching allowed, no drawing back, no, and that's it. So, so this is now this is now where they're going into. And this, again, I've watched it, so you don't have to. Like I saw a couple of cases where these we call them fighters are clearly concussed. Mm. They get slapped, and there are two guys behind him who catch him, and then he gets up. He's got thirty seconds. He gets up and he has a go at his opponent. He's concussed, but the fight continues. Yeah. So that's also ridiculous. And so I, I don't know. I mean, people people can do what they want. There's free will and so forth. But it just see, feels to me in the current climate of long-term health by brain injury, long-term health outcomes caused by brain injury, the concussion stuff we've spoken about on this podcast. I couldn't believe that people are embarking on this as a commercial enterprise. It's unbelievable. I mean, you just alluded to the fact that there are so many sports that are trying to avoid concussions mm. because of legal ramifications that might come down the line. I mean, does it feel that a sport like this, there's clearly there's, there's going to be some ramifications, I bet, for some of those players or participants? Yeah. But could they sue on the basis of they'll, the sport didn't enough? Well, no, because they've clearly taken the risk and they know what the risk is. Somehow they'll get lawyers to indemnify the organization mm. against mm. that. Um now, there are quotes in this article you can read where people have said, well, we don't know fully the risk of these injuries, but I think we know enough now. 10 years ago, yes. 50, 20 years ago, for sure. But now I think there's enough known to say that this is probably going to cause problems if you mm. expose yourself too often to them. So they'll, they'll have to sign something and then the sport will say, you knew the risks when you took part. People say that about rugby now. They say that about rugby 20 years ago. I don't know that we did know about the risks of brain injuries 20 years ago. If we had, we'd have done more then. We're doing a lot. Well, some people reject that. I think we're doing a lot now because we know the risks. How can this then start in the current environment of knowing these risks? And as you might expect, um, boxing is the comparison here. Mm. And the organizers say, look, in a boxing match, you'll get hit in the head with 300 to 400 punches in a fight. Okay, that's not true. <laughs> There's not that many thrown. Not, the, yeah. These guys are going to get hit with three slaps. So they're trying to defend it on the basis it's only three and they're only slaps. But there, you know, it's a, a slap. And when you watch them, you'll see a lot of the time they use the base of the hand. Mm. And that's not a slap anymore. That's actually using your hand like a hammer mm. <laughs> or an axe. It's a chop more than it is a mm. slap. And you'll hear the impact on some of them. It's not slapping sounds no. coming out of this. It's hitting sounds. And also, when you cause rotation, that's that's a high risk for a brain injury because then you... You know, people often think direct impact to the head, but a rotational force is just as important. Some of the stuff we're doing with mouth guards at the moment is showing that your head injuries in rugby are not only attributable to linear acceleration, you mm. know, it's things that cause your head to go forward or backwards or sideways. Rotational is as likely because you get shear forces and, tor and torsion in, inside the skull. So that and then if the final point is there's no, there's no ability to defend yourself. So I just, it's just, it's just like, you know, 
I spend most of my work week thinking about how to prevent head impacts in rugby. And meanwhile, some people are embarking on a competition that is designed, <laughs> designed to, to only it. cause head impacts that cause concussions. Not not That's, to be to put a spoke in the wheel, but to some extent, it does open the question as to when when is a sport too dangerous? Because mm. there are obviously lots of sports where there is a risk. And whether that risk is calculated or not, boxing, of course, being one of them, there is, of course, a risk. Mm. And you can't change the nature of the sport to make it completely risk-free because otherwise you change the no, sport. No. Um, you know, I always think about the, the Gloucester cheese roll when they have to race down the mountain to <laughs> yes. chase the cheese. There is a risk that you're going to break a limb going down that, but yeah. you voluntarily yeah. cho- choose to do that or right. not. Right. Um, and I, I guess that's the whole debate around what happens with any sport that where there is contact involved, to what extent is there a risk? Yeah. And you could even, and this goes a little off-piste, is you could even argue that for activities of daily living, some of which are more extreme, climbing Everest Mm. is quite dangerous. Climbing K2, even more dangerous. Mm. For some reason, Instagram is showing me all these videos of K2 in the last month, and it's unbelievable. (laughs) Some of the, like, it looks looks as dangerous as I know it is. Mm. Yet no one's made that illegal, because people have the will to do that, or or the right, the free will to choose. Similarly, driving your car can be deemed to be dangerous, not as dangerous as it might be, given mm. the fact that we make people qualify, we make the cars roadworthy, we ensure that they've got airbags, we ask people to wear seat belts and to obey speed limits and so forth. So I guess the point I'm making is that even in sport, even when a sport is dangerous, as long as the authorities are doing everything that is reasonable to minimize that danger, the sport can continue. Yeah. So in boxing... There are concussion checks. There is a referee who is meant to stop the fight when there is an indication of a severe injury to a fighter so that he's not defenseless against further impacts. In cycling, for instance, the remember there's all that controversy around what the finish straight looks like. Mm-hmm. You can't have a 90-degree bend 200 meters out when cyclists are trying to go 65, 70k an hour. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. dangerous. The cars have to be cleared. The barriers have to meet certain... Yes, like you have to mitigate a, a the risk. Sprint finish is an incredibly <clears throat> dangerous activity, but as long as that risk is mitigated, mm. it can continue with everyone's agreement. And I think that's the point. Mm. So again, here, they'll argue that they're min- minimizing that risk. They'll have checks on the fighters. They'll make sure that they're okay and so forth. But I don't know. At this point, it does feel like it's it's getting closer to that line mm. to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as I say, it's uh, something that you might <laughs> take an interest in watching. But as Ross says, uh, if you don't, we have watched it and uh, it's uh, something that is quite surprising to watch. Anyway, let's move on to our subject of today. And that is the book that we mentioned right at the start of the podcast. It's called Guns and Needles, a journey into the heart of South African sports, steroid and drug culture. And even though it is a South African story, we feel there are very many global examples. And the author of that book is Clinton Funderburg. It came out in January 2022, so we're a little bit late in reviewing it. But I just started reading it. And what's interesting about Clinton is he comes from a very strong journalistic background. He's an award-winning sports writer. He was the uh, he was the uh, sports editor and sports writer for the Sunday Times newspaper, which is probably one of the biggest and most respected uh, sports publications amongst other publications in South Africa. He is currently the head of communications at Supersport, which is a South African TV channel. And But most importantly, he is a man who really knows how to cover the beat and discover the story. And as you'll see in this story, Figuring out how to speak to people who are involved in the drug game here in South Africa, talking to the people who have been caught, the excuses they come up with is a fascinating example. And Ross, I think what came out of that discussion, and as you'll see in our discussion with him, is that it took a long time to get those stories 
they're not necessarily surprising, but some of the detail mm. that I didn't know is what Clinton brings to this to this discussion. Yeah, it's very much insider, right? It's it's someone who has successfully managed to get across the barrier and embed himself to the extent of, and he'll tell you that he's used the drugs himself. Yeah. In in um, what he said twenty years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. He had a friend, and he, that's how he discovered how accessible they are. And he'll relate that story to you in this interview. He'll give you some other accounts of exactly what he's learned, who's doing what, when, how, and so this is a, you know, there's a there's a shroud of mystery around doping, and I think whilst this interview doesn't blow it wide open and reveal everything, it's going to give you a lot, a lot of insight yeah, into sure. what happens. So yeah, here we go then, Clinton Funderburg. Right, so Clinton, welcome to the Science of Sports uh, podcast. Um, it's interesting when I spotted this book in a local bookstore here in South Africa, Guns and Needles is the title of it. Um, I, I thought it was a, an older book than it actually was, but as you told us before the podcast, it came out uh, just over a year ago. The first question I've actually got for you is more of a journalistic one, more than anything to do with science. And as a journalist myself, I was fascinated to know how you got people to talk to you about these things, because... In my experience of trying to get people who are who have been drug cheats and those sort of things to actually talk about their experience is, is quite difficult. Was there some methodology behind it? Hi, Mike, and uh, Prof, thanks very much. Uh, that's a very good question. And what I, in fact, relied on, having been a, a sports journalist uh, previously in my earlier life, was, you know, those tactics, how you... Um, you're sure the person uh, you're interviewing that you're going to take a nuanced look at it. It's not an expose, anything like that. And what was very interesting for me is there's no great revelations in the book. All of this stuff is on the public record. And what I discovered, not with all, but with uh, with many of the athletes, uh, is they were quite willing to talk. And what helped in some instances was the passage of time. So it allowed them a little bit of perspective. Obviously, the hullabaloo had died down. Uh, those kind of things. And and I also think that um, I managed to develop um, an element of trust, which is important, that you are going to tell their story in a fair way. Uh, now, of course, I contacted some athletes who refused to talk whatsoever. Um, I think the prominent rugby player, Pierre Janchi, was one. Uh, there was Javier uh, Krobler, who, who's now playing for the Sharks, played very good rugby. He's another, although he had had a tell-all in the Daily Mail in the UK, he felt that he wanted to put it behind him. Uh, he had copped a lot of flack over the years, and uh, he just shut down. And, you know, I could appreciate that from a lot of athletes who didn't want to talk. Uh, but I was, uh, I was quite encouraged by those who did. And uh, like you say, it's not easy. Uh, but, you know, you, you work those contacts, um, and you try as, as much as you can to assure them that you will be true to their story. What was the most animosity you experienced? Was there anyone who was openly hostile as opposed to avoidant? Uh, that's a good question. In fact, not. I was very surprised. And even subsequent to the, the, the publishing of the book, people have said there's been fallouts, etc. Uh, not too much at all, uh, which is great, because I didn't make any, any inflated claims or whatever in the book. Um, you know, rugby's history is well documented, uh, and, and the issues within, within schoolboy rugby, for instance, um, athletics, cycling, all those things are out there. And uh, Ross, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, there was very little blowback on, uh, on what appeared. What's, what's interesting is you get into, in, in some stages of the book, we talk about the sort of criminal underbelly of some of the steroid producers and the, the, the people that supply the steroids in South Africa. Was there any 
did you ever feel unsafe uncovering and, and writing about that sort of stuff? Because obviously there's a fair amount of money involved and people who might make money out of it might feel that they're at risk of being exposed. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because those cases you talk of, uh, I mean, certainly there are two murders recorded uh, in the book uh, linked, linked to steroids, but uh, obviously you can't speak to, to those individuals, but I spoke to people around them um, and they were a little bit cagey, a little bit coy. Um, there was a big case in Pochestrum where a guy was uh, was bust for for an enormous amount of amount of steroids, and then I spoke to an old boxing pal of mine who uh, who's now in his early fifties, and uh, he's been taking juice for thirty years, but he deals on the side as well, and he warned me about the implications. Um, but I at no point no did I did I feel threatened or anything. I spoke to one dealer who is referred to by his first name in the book, and I kind of relate our exchange. And you, you kind of play the stance, you know, because what I was trying to uh, find out from was, you know, who does he supply? How does he supply? Why does he supply? And how does it all work? Um, and like I say, it was this very kind of um, edgy, nervous, nervous stance. And uh, he was he was very reluctant to come out and give me his full name, which was fine. I accepted it. And uh, that's pretty much how I had to play it around those very severe cases. Mm, I mean, obviously, I'd, we'd like to explore that supply chain stuff a bit more, but not entirely tongue in cheek. I suspect some of them would actually see the book as promotional, <laughs> given the way, <laughs> that, given the way that anti-doping and doping works, and how many how many supplements, quote unquote, and drugs are available through fitness clubs and gyms and so on. And there's no prosecution to the user. Yeah. Many of these guys might say, actually, the book is quite good publicity for us. So maybe there's that. Um, not entirely tongue-in-cheek. Question from me is, why do you care about doping? Like, you're a journalist, and I dare say many of your colleagues, not only in South Africa, but around the world, are quite happy to turn a blind eye to doping because it tarnishes the product. So why would you even care enough to write this book? Uh, that's a great question. So my early instincts were uh, around being a reporter back in the day. And every couple of months, I'd be tripping over these stories, having to pursue some, etc. And what I am at, at heart, I'm a storyteller, and I love to hear stories. And almost without fail, every single one of these cases has a backstory that's remarkable. It's never dull. It's never boring. It's never un uninteresting. Um, I care because I've been exposed to elite level sport, uh, primarily as a, as a reporter, uh, a bit like Mike having done Olympic Games and World Cups and, and things like that. And, and clean sport matters to me in the, that context. I was at the um, 2000 Olympic Games where Marion Jones was one of the superstars. And we all know what happened there. I mean, it ended, mm. it ended very messily. Um, subsequently, uh, my wife was married to an Olympic uh, high jump champion. Uh, so he was kind of part of the family. He won the Olympic gold in 2012 and, in fact, lost his medal uh, just because he was caught up in that whole Russian doping scandal as well. So a lot of this is quite close to home. And then uh, working quite closely with boxing and, and being ringside for, for these things, uh, I've got to know a lot of the fighters, some of whom have been caught for doping as well. And ultimately, you know, when you, when you read the headlines and things like that, it's all quite academic, etc. But it's it's generally, it's quite a... Uh, an appalling uh, uh, sort of human interest story. You know, there's there's tears and there's sadness, there's disappointment, there's stupidity. It's all kind of uh, blended in. Um, so the, the kind of human side of it is is what appeals to me as well. Um, and and there's, there's, so, there's so many dichotomies and the guys who talk, the guys who don't talk, the people who are in absolute denial, who are in the majority. Um, 
I was, I was quite drawn in by that and I tried to get my head around it. And I must tell you, I came in to this project um, thinking things were black and white. Uh, but as you'll know, and as I discover uh, often listening to your podcast, there's often a lot of gray um, when it comes to things like stimulants, like steroids, like doping. When you were going through this process, I'm always fascinated to know whether there are people at the elite. I mean, you'll probably get a sense of this from the people that you spoke to. Is there a, is there this sense amongst professional athletes that unless you are doping, you can't be competitive? Or is it on the other side, athletes believe that they, they, that they feel very aggrieved when they feel like they have to take drugs um, to be, you know, they do it just because they want to be competitive. Is, that, is it a sort of... I often think about cyclists who are up and coming young riders and they get to 1920 and somebody comes along and says to them, well, unless you're doing something, you're not going to be competitive. Is it that sense of like, well, I have to do it. Otherwise I'm not going to be competitive. Wasn't there, sorry to interrupt before you yeah. answer, wasn't there a case of a top cyclist in Europe who got stopped on a ride once for a test and he knew he was glowing and he said, I'll retire on the spot. So why did you do it? He says, well, what was my choice? I got paint houses. Yeah. That's kind of the, that, that's the scenario. I don't exactly. know if that was a, it's one yeah. of those made up tales, but I yeah. remember hearing or thinking, you know, that's a great analogy or an illustration of it. You know, the choice is I can take the drug or I can go paint a house. Yeah. And I remember speaking to a, a triathlete um, a good decade ago who said that um, it was his full time job and that he, it was the only thing he was good at. And he was literally willing to, I said to him, if you, if you knew you were going to die at the age of 40, but win the Olympic gold, what, what would you, mm. what would you choose? And he said, I'd, I'd take the drugs um, because that was that sense. But so, so what, what, what was your general feeling around that, that issue? Yeah, about a month or two after the book was published, I took a call from a female runner. She was a comrade's gold medalist. And she said to me, uh, she should be out there running. And she said, you know exactly who's on the juice and who isn't. And she said, it's heartbreaking. Um, and I've, I have spoken to athletes who feel compelled to take it. But as I discovered, one of my really great sources was um, Dr. Khalid Khalant, who heads up the South African Institute for Drug-Free Sport. And I discovered it's not always about performance. Uh, vanity comes into it as well. So you'd have athletes who aren't necessarily elite athletes or even just ordinary weekend warriors. You'd have it, uh, have taking it for, for vanity. Um, and then you'd have guys who felt the pressure of, of having to fulfill a contract they say, you've got to get back on the field. You've got to get back on the bike. There's no question. Uh, that certainly uh, happened with Owen Honey, the cyclist. And he felt, he felt really, he was uh, under enormous pressure to get back. And then there's recovery as well. Um, and then finally, performance, uh, no doubt. And, and that view uh, was communicated several times. Just to say, I'm not in the game. You know, if I'm, mm. if I'm not on something, and I, I know full well that others are using it, you know, I feel, I feel it's, it's a risk worth taking. And is there, is there, it's obviously a blanket statement to suggest that that is across all sport. Are, are there more sports that you saw that are more inclined to be, well, we've just got to do this and other sports that are less inclined to feel that way? I mean, I know it's probably a difficult question to answer. Uh, yes, uh, certainly the, the two, the chief ones where that was particularly apt uh, was in rugby, uh, particularly South Africa where there's this obsession with size so it's often to bulk up and, you know, the traditional old time steroids like testosterone, et cetera, that helps you bulk up. Um, so that, that uh, certainly came through. And then a similar narrative uh, in athletics as well, mm -hmm. obviously with the margins are tiny and you need to, to make those up um, 
I'd say it was most prevalent in those two sports. Mm-hmm. And especially, might I add, uh, it's it's rugby from schoolboy age. Yeah. And so the the problem you've got is a few issues. Some of which are like conceptual things people must get their head around. Is if you're a 16 year old boy and you feel that pressure to dope to perform to retain your spot in the team because we've got such an aggressive pipeline it goes from school into professional rugby you know you're in a shop window then you get bought <laughs> then mm. you stay in the next shop window till you get selected for the spring box so as people just wrap their hands around why would you dope all the way through school and then stop as a pro <laughs> and secondly like you're creating behaviors habits in young athletes that then is likely to perpetuate forward so that's that's yeah. clearly a problem. Um, I don't think though that it's unique to South Africa. It's have a difficult time persuading me that other countries don't have a similar obsession. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, Vincent, obviously this book is very much a South African story, but did you get a sense that this is happening all over the world, particularly talking, let's talk specifically about the rugby issue because you go into quite a lot of depth in that in your book. Um, schoolboy rugby, that the pressure to perform, the pressure to bulk up, do you think that's a global issue? Um, in rugby, certainly, uh, I mean, the case is all the time, but then moving across other sports, so we see the Russian situation where athletes um, have been involved in state-sponsored doping, you can remember the Winter Olympics back in Sochi, and that hasn't debated. Um, almost uh, every month, uh, the, the lists come out and uh, Russians are, are caught on them. There was, uh, I think it was a hammer throw last week who came out and confessed uh, that uh, he, uh, he had taken the steroids. Um, and, and, and then, of course, uh, you know what's happening in Kenya as well. It's become ubiquitous in, uh, in Kenyan athletics. So I've no doubt it happens. Now, the, the issue with South Africa, and I think it's credit to say, it's, is that they have a lot of testing, a lot of aggressive testing, not enough testing, uh, because, of course, there's huge cost implications to that as well. But they try to cover as much as they can. And uh, they're very public. They have a very... Um, uh, liberal, open-minded uh, leader in Khalid Khalan, who's out there, he's talking. Um, so I think Saeeds do quite a good job. So, so South Africa's reputation, I think, is linked to the rate of testing, which is significant. Yeah. So that was one of the things we actually were talking about before the podcast and suggesting that because South Africa is one of the countries which you mentioned is one of the, you know, one of the highest cases are cases of doping in the world relative to our size is the suggestion then that it is because testing is working or is because this is a massive problem that we're just touching the iceberg. So you're, you're suggesting that it's because we're doing a pretty good job in terms of exposing these people. Yes, but I'd like to add another, uh, another thing to the, another dimension to this, which I found fascinating is talking to Khalid Khalant and he speaks about South Africa's uh, diminishing morality and lack of regard for ethics in the kind of in the whole social space, you know, where, where people drive through red lights and they, they chance their arm with things and there's a very limited law enforcement, that kind of thing. So, and, you know, sport doesn't act as an island. You know, sport reflects broader society. So, so that whole thing about taking chances and flirting with, uh, with what's right or what's illegal or what isn't, um, South Africans tend to think it's cool, you know, let's give it a go. Um, everyone does it, you know, let's try it. Um, yeah. and for me, that, 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 that put a, a completely new spin on things uh, because I do think that um, ethics aren't uh, the be-all and end-all uh, in our sport, certainly not in wider society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of it, is, 
part of it is that many countries have adopted the equivalence of Donald Trump's approach to COVID. Remember when he said, just stop testing and the pandemic <laughs> will be over. True. So that's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the anti-doping equivalence in many places. But that point about sport not being an island is really important. And Clinton alluded to this. There's a guy called Glenn Hagerman who's done a lot of research in schoolboy rugby, particularly in Natal, which is for the listeners overseas is a province or state in South Africa. And he's found that like lifetime prevalence of steroid use in schoolboys is up towards 10%. Who will say that's confessed. So wow. there's probably more who are saying, I'm not telling you, even if you guarantee anonymity. And then they say, well, why do you do it? Why do you take the drugs? And to that point, 63% in 2011 said to look good, which was twice as many as to improve performance. Wow. So schoolboys dope mainly for vanity reasons. Mm. Now, if you're a first team rugby player, you've got two pressures plus peer pressure because all the mates who don't play rugby are taking it for other reasons. Mm. And so if it's a societal problem, why would it be exempt from being a sporting problem? See, that's, that's the point. And now you, you say in England, is there the same pressure to look good for young men? Yes. Young women too, different drugs maybe, but it's there. Yeah. So of course it's going to spill over into doping, yeah. especially if the testing is inadequate. And one of the problems in minors is you can't test them without parental consent. Mm. Now, one in 10 athletes who dope have parental peer pressure and parents who are providing the drug. So mm. Do you think the parents will consent to the testing? No. And if they don't all consent, none consent. So they yeah. never get tested. So we never know the extent of the problem. I mean, it, 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 let's delve a little bit into that schoolboy issue because it is it is a, a big part of the book. And I'm quite fascinated to find, I, I've had occasion of meeting somebody whose brother was going into university and wanted to play f- first team um, rugby and was told he literally had to put on 10 kilos between his matricula and the start of his university. And the only way to do that was to do the drugs. Is that... We talked about the fact that there's there's obviously a vanity element to it, but and but it also spills into a performance element into it. If you look at South African rugby as a as a rule, is that there is there a sense that there's a requirement to be a certain size as you go through the ranks? In other words, is bulk such a key thing? You talked a little bit in a book about some of the youngsters that have come through that are lighter and more agile and playing a different style of rugby, but. Is it literally like, well, you've got to be this kind of weight and is, uh, to be a, a, a top-class rugby player? I mean, is, is that a, a said thing, given your experience in the rugby sp- space? I, I relate the story of, of one young player who rocked up at training uh, in a junior system uh, where the coach said to him, listen, you need to go to the fridge, you know, which was a euphemism, you know, you need to, uh, you need to sort yourself out, um, uh, definitely. Um, I still think that's incredibly important. So you do have the smaller size players, people like Ches and Colby, um, previously somebody like Warren Whiteley, you might think, uh, currently Aaron's uh, those kind of guys who show that it, it remains a game for all shapes and sizes. But there's still uh, no, no question, uh, starting at schoolboy level, there is this obsession with size. Guys have to go in. I, um, I interviewed a former coach, a guy called Sean Hagen, who had coached at Durbanville. And the claim was not only was he okay with the boys using steroids, but he actually injected two of the boys. Uh, anyway, Sean Hayford was fired. He's he's quit. He was a, a he was a provincial coach as well. He went up to Greekers, uh, uh, coached a little bit um, there as well. But I think that's that's ample evidence 
um, of the the unhealthy obsession with uh, with getting big, uh, which remains. There were cases like which which say it's heard where where players misinterpreted what the coach said. So he said go and get big, and they thought that meant they need to go and juice. But what he what he meant was you know go eat your meat and veg and get in the gym, you know just just work uh, hell of a hard. Um, so it's even you know the messaging <laughs> comes under scrutiny as well. Um, and, and often the assumption is, listen, if I need to put on 10 kilos in two months, there's only one way to do it. Mm. Look, I, I, I agree size is an obsession, but I genuinely don't think that's a South African issue. I know marketing has taught us that South Africans are big thuggery type rugby players. <laughs> but like when you look at the actual numbers from the World Cup, we are not the biggest team. We don't have the highest mass among our forwards. We don't have the biggest under 20s any longer. So South Africans are the same size as all rugby players around the world. So if that problem exists here, that problem exists there. And are rugby players, I mean, do we know whether the rugby players have increased in size in the last decade well, they or have. two decades? They have. I mean, I yeah, I published a study actually on that. We, we looked at data from every World Cup going back to 91. And after 2007, it increased progressively with the biggest increase coming after 95 because that was when it got professional. Mm. And professionalism brings with it better nutrition, better training, yes, but also more incentives to dope and funding to dope mm. and wherewithal to dope. So two things are always linked. But then in about 2007, it plateaued. So they haven't gotten any bigger since then among mm. the backs. And in the forwards, I think 2011 onwards, they've now stabilized. I mean, is it fair to say that there is the suspicion about how that size has increased or is it is it just conjecture to suggest that it's... It's always fair to be suspicious, of course. <laughs> it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Clinton, you're, you're, I mean, what's interesting about you is that not only have you written this great book, but you've been very involved in, in, you know, rugby, as we talked about. One of the interesting sports you talk about is boxing. Now, boxing is unique in that you've got all these different federations that run these different global um, uh, titles that you can do in IBF and WBA, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're, that's one sport where there seems to be absolutely no control and boxers themselves almost have to agree to do doping on both sides of the fight before they agree to do doping. Tell us a bit about the boxing scenario and where it sits globally and maybe more specifically in South Africa. Okay, well, I'll start off, I'll preface it by, by quoting an all-time sport writer who described boxing as the red-light district of sport. You know, this was 80 years ago and nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed. I could run through a list of fighters who've been caught for doping, starting with the guy Canelo Alvarez, who is by consensus the pound-for-pound pound king, so the best boxer on earth. Um, he's been caught, uh, of course, he claimed it was uh, Mexican beef. Uh, Tyson Fury, the world heavyweight champion, Roy Jones, one of the greatest middleweights um, of, of all time, Vitaly Klitschko, uh, Conor Ben, most recently uh, in the UK, um, had his fight with Chris Eubank uh, Jr. Uh, cancelled um, as, a, as a consequence. Uh, Roy, Roy Jones, as I mentioned, and then closer to home, uh, Kevin Marina, who's now campaigning as a heavyweight, uh, he was caught, a uh, former heavyweight champion, a guy called Ruan Fisser, is still sitting out of ban. Um, he was caught, uh, Zolane Tete um, was an international world champion. He was, in fact, uh, uh, exposed in, in the UK, and uh, they're still awaiting uh, the results of his, his B-sample, but almost inevitably, we know, we know what uh, that result is going to be. And the great problem with boxing is there's no single federation that runs world boxing. So there's nothing stopping you or Ross from going off and starting a world boxing organization in your garage or in your flat at home. But if, if 
fax machine or whatever whatever the case is. There's nothing to stop you and you can create a bogus title, that kind of thing. So the whole boxing environment is splintered. So while they talk, you know, talking about world champion is a misnomer. You're not a world champion. You're a WBC champion or you're an IBF champion or a WBA uh, or an IBO champion. That's what you are. Um, mm. and, and, and for instance, when Lorena was caught, uh, his, his team made a, pre a representation to Ed Levine, who was the president of the IBO, and Ed, Ed said, oh, that's fine, okay, we accept it. And uh, he, was free, he was free to fight. And almost without fail, that is the case. Now, unfortunately for Rowan Fisser, he, uh, he, went, he got a whole lot of lawyers on the side, spent a lot of money, uh, he lost his case. And because it had happened in the South African environment, and SAGE was involved, is they pushed very hard. And uh, so he got a ban, and he's, he's obviously sitting out uh, that bad but um, overseas it's nothing less than a joke what you might get is a six-month suspension which uh, has zero effect because very few fighters are fighting more than twice a year anyway if you're lucky yeah. you might fight three times a year just because that you know that's the nature of the sport um, there was an exception there was a guy called Gerald Miller who two weeks before he was going to fight Anthony Joshua for the world heavyweight championship he uh, he blew up the testing cup a cocktail of steroids and he was thrown out for two years he's busy making his way back um but but those are the exceptions rather than the rule now there there is one uh, very uh, promising thing in boxing so there's a, what's called vada which is a voluntary anti-doping association run by dr margaret goodman and the world boxing council are, are aligned with this and essentially if you want to fight for a wbc title or something recognized for wbc you have to be enrolled in the vada program Although having said that, somebody like Canelo got busted. He got a slap on the wrist. Um, I would, I would say quite easily that uh, uh, boxing is, has the has the most uh, lackluster, carefree, and lackadaisical attitude to doping out of all the sports. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So when you say that they're being they're being tested, if if it, there's this kind of free for all situation, who's who's doing the testing? Because it sounds like they can decide if they want to be tested or not. I mean, is it, there's obviously an overarching body that says, "Well, we're still going to test you," or is it only certain federations that test? No, no. So for instance, if you're fighting in the UK, you have the UK anti-doping people, they come in and test you. Uh, if you and remember, it's random. So it's not like all overseas fighters that come to South Africa are going to be tested. Uh, we had a case of a, a fighter coming out from Scandinavia. He was tested by SAIDS and he, uh, you know, he blew hot on the test and he went back home and SAIDS couldn't do anything. They couldn't enforce anything. All they do is report the finding. And that's you know three months later the guy the guy was fighting again. It's 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 very it's very loose out there. Um, no question. What happens uh, in the US typically is VADA will do testing, and if you're enrolled, you have testing, and uh, and that's in fact how uh, Conor Ben was caught. It, it also didn't help that his doctor is is on record on YouTube and all sorts of uh, about about fighting um, or, or about challenging the the, the, the dope testers, etc. Well, it's not a dissimilar situation then to when 
athletes come and compete. For instance, we have had a lot of Russian athletes come and compete in the Comrades Marathon. And there is strong suspicion and almost, <laughs> almost knowledge that these athletes are doping, but we can only test them in the window that they're in South Africa. And so mm -hmm. all they have to do is time it right. And you would then be reliant on someone else doing that testing. And that someone else is Russian anti-doping and look how that's gone. And that's why even outside of boxing, which sounds absolutely chaotic, I know not much about it, but even in athletics where there is a world anti-doping agency and national federations that supposedly function, you still had to have like the athletics integrity unit. So these bodies exist almost as a solution to a problem. And the problem is that there's no um, valid, reliable, trustworthy, and consistent anti-doping happening across the world. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one of the in interesting um, uh, examples that you use is of David George, a local South African uh, cyclist who uh, rode with Lance Armstrong back in the day. Um, and he was caught a few years back. Tell us a bit about him because First of all, he was unique in, in where he was obviously found guilty in what he did afterwards. But again, you try to contact him again. Just tell us a little bit about him and, and why he was such a unique case. Yeah, he was he was very interesting because, as you say, um, unusually, he was a guy who put up his hand and he copped to doping, uh, which was, which was remarkable. And, and more than that, he decided he would cooperate with Sage. He was quite happy to cooperate. And so him and Kalitka Lant, they it was a bit of back and forth. And essentially what you can do is you can trade your honesty, you can, uh, those kind of things for leniency. Um, I, you know, I wasn't quite sure what, what motivated David, although I felt it might be kind of a cleansing uh, for him. Um, and what I did is I flew down, I met him, we went for dinner, he spoke about it, he was absolutely contrite. Um, and as to your earlier point, what he had said, so he had started out, he cycled for US Postal. Uh, and you know, that's a team obviously linked with Lance Armstrong. He, he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk about, it. he wouldn't, you know, uh, he didn't even suggest that pressure was, uh, was, was put on him. Uh, related to, to Armstrong. But what he did say is he said, listen, everyone around you is doing it. And you just, you know, if you're going to be in, in, a, in the race, um, you have to do it. So which, which I found interesting. But it was also how he started small. And then, you know, that's obviously the gateway into more serious mm -hmm. uh, steroids. And I certainly got the hint that it, it was part of a broader, maybe a broader reality, but maybe even a broader plan very specific uh, plan within the team. And then how he was caught was that uh, uh, Sage went after him because there were suspicions around him. There'd been reports uh, related to him as well. Um, and, and as I spoke earlier, the costs associated with this, but Sage were quite comfortable and quite confident that pursuing him would result in a positive, positive finding, which in fact is what happened. Yeah. Mm. You spoke there that he, he started small and then progressed. Did he tell you what that pathway was? Yes, Clinton? Ross, if I got your question right, it was just about the poll. Uh, it's, the, yeah. the sound is poor. Um, yeah, I was just asking, you mentioned that he started small and then progressed, and then you spoke about Gateway. Did he explain to you what it was? No, he didn't, but I, I, I got the idea, you know, the, the sexy choice at the time was EPO. 
Yeah. Because I just wonder like how they do it. So like, how do you take the first step? There must be medical supervision. You're not going to go and get some yourself and inject it and so on. So I, because I, I know David also, he, he runs and owns the bike shop that I buy a lot of things from. And we've spoken quite a lot. And it's quite clear that they were all, as you say, all doing it. Okay. And it had it had to have been delivered by some kind of formal system. But he's always been very reluctant to talk about anyone other than himself. And so he's never actually come clean about that element of it. Only his own outcomes and actions. Yeah. Yeah. I think the question is, for me, is that, if everybody says that these drugs are so easily available, I mean, for instance, whether you go to a gym or whether you're a top cyclist, is it that easy? And how do people, you know, in other words, how do people get hold of the drugs? Is if you're a top young cyclist and you enter a team, is there somebody that comes along and says, well, I've got the stuff that's going to make you better. Is it somebody within the team? Is it somebody within this, within that community that is making money out of selling the drugs to these type of riders and gym people, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm just very interested. I mean, I've never been off drugs in my life, maybe because I'm not good enough, but, <laughs> but it's, I'm always interested to know how it gets into the system. How do young people get attracted and pulled into that space? Well, Mike, if you'll indulge me, I mean, I have my own experience. About 20 years ago, I was a gym buddy, and I used to train with a, a big guy, a very seriously large guy, and we spoke about it. And then he said, let's go. And then one Sunday, we shot down to a chemist at Lindhurst, which is a suburb in the northeast of Johannesburg. And uh, he was out of the car in less than two minutes. He came back um, with, it was Decaduravalin and something else. And we went down to Bedreview, another suburb of Javu, to the gym there. And I tried it and injected me in the butt. And then for about six weeks, I, uh, I had a go. So this I got through a pellet gym. And then subsequently, I would uh, I'd use ephedrine. And I just, I'd get ephedrine. There was a gym shop next door. Funny enough, the guy, we shared the same surname. And he'd, he'd happily supply me ephedrine, which was easy. And then sure. years later, I would buy online. And I would I'd meet the guy in the car park at the shopping center. Um, it, was, it was that easy, you know. Uh, it would change hands, it'd give me an envelope with a stuff in it, and it was, it was done. Um, and certainly, uh, talking to athletes, uh, teammates supply them often, and then in gyms, I mean, there's a, a gym famously in, in Joburg where they deal out of the car boots. So whatever you need, you know, the personal trainer, you shoot down to his car, and uh, cash will be swapped, and uh, you'll get sorted out. It's really not very difficult. You can do an online search, and probably take you about five to ten minutes to find a reliable supplier. So when you say you, you you go to online, in other words, you just search it and then you'll find a website that provides that stuff or somebody who deals in it. I mean, what, where would you buy it online, for instance? Yeah, very much. I mean, obviously the risk is you don't know what you're buying. Yeah. Um, but there are some African-centric sites. You know, I'd sooner deal with Anabolics SA or whatever it is. Uh, they're dealing, and, and although it may come from China, ultimately, I don't want to deal with China directly, but they, it, it's, it's not very well hidden. And we're not talking about the dark web or anything like that. It, it truly is as simple as a, as a search. Um, there are Reddit forums and things like that where, where guys are quite uh, open about it. You see, because the thing is, there aren't many prosecutions for steroid use in South Africa. Of course, we mm -hmm. spoke about uh, the manufacturers, um, things like that, but uh, 
no one's getting prosecuted for for handing out steroids, uh, and you know that's obviously part of the problem. Mm. And do we know how people like the, the David Georges and the endurance athletes and those guys? I mean, they're not necessarily in a gym environment, but they are obviously being tempted by people who want to benefit from, from their performance, either financially by buying the stuff that's illegal or by having them perform well for their team. I mean, any idea about how that, how they get that stuff? Is it the same way? Well, I see the old, uh, the team sky doctor just this week, you know, he had his yeah. license taken away a couple of years ago and now he, he, he was obviously trying to get uh, reinstated and he lost. So a, a lot of it, particularly in professional cycling, is through official channels within the team. Um, you have a doctor overseeing its use. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, I do know in local cycling, and I'm thinking of things like the Cape Epic and, and uh, a lot of it, that off-road stuff as well, where states have targeted specific cyclists who are dealing. So that's obviously a lot less uh, formal, um, but it's known that if you want, if you want some stuff, you go to, you go to a guy. And uh, the guy fixes you up. Um, I, a guy like Carlo Del Fava, uh, the, the, the former Italian international shock slock as well, he, one of his teammates, you know, he was talking about getting over injury. And one of his teammates said, oh, you should try this. And Johan Ackermann, the former Springbok, uh, who's now coaching as well, he had a bad injury. And he was a policeman. And one of his police colleagues said, yeah, you need to take this to sort out your, your, your knee injury. So, um, it, I mean, it ranges from obviously... Uh, proper doctors and medical experts who administrate it to, you know, the casual guy in the gym who's just trying to help out a buddy. Yeah. Mm. How much of the, you mentioned in a couple of chapters that a lot of the excuses that are used by sports people is that they were, they were, they were naive to what they were taking. They were taking. So they were either taking something that they thought was perfectly fine. And it turns out that it's tainted. There's obviously cases of supplements that, are easily available on the shelf that have been tainted. You mentioned some of the brands even in your book. Do you think that there is a, a valid excuse for people that are just not informed about what they can and cannot take? Because it is a pretty much a minefield. You and I and Ross can sit and talk about it because we are in the space and we would know what we, what is at risk. But if you're a young 20, 21-year-old, is there really enough education out there to make sure that they don't take stuff they're not allowed to take? Well, there's a lot of education. Is there enough? I, I couldn't be sure. Now, the supplements one is, is a very interesting one because it often leads to a, to a gray area. Think of the recent case of Karina Horn, who fought and fought and claimed her supplements were tainted. And so she's a yeah, sprinter, she South African sprinter. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, the fastest, the fastest woman um, in South African history. Um, and, and she was eventually exonerated. So they conceded that uh, there was no fault on her side. She was exonerated. She's back, she's back running again. There are several instances of that. Um, and then you have a case of a guy like DeMar Penner, who was a mixed martial arts champion. And he claimed these supplements had been tainted. But then quite smartly, the medical experts would say, well, listen, at that level of, of, of steroids found in supplement, you'd have to have like 600 injections. Uh, something like that. Uh, the supplements one I found to be a very convenient excuse and a very common excuse. Um, it was the same one uh, Roland Skumar uh, used as well in, in his defense. And he finally, you know, he, he got that, that Russian doctor who exposed um, a lot of the Russian doping system. He got him on his case uh, to, uh, 
to help defend him as well. Um, but strange enough, with steroids and everything like that, it is you know very different guilty and not guilty when you when you mm. walk with steroids. But the supplements is a very tricky one, and and chiefly I think because the whole industry is unregulated. Um, there's a, there was a case of, of a supplements company supplying to Macro. The supplements were put together in a guy's garage where people were working barefoot and kind of stirring things into buckets. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like a circus of it, and, and, and people are quite cavalier about it. But, uh, you know, I'm a believer in strict liability, uh, which, which is, you know, what, what's found in your system. It's, it's up to you. And I think in this day and age, when, when you know, elite athletes, certainly professional athletes, um, they should they should be well aware of the risks of taking of taking supplements. Uh, you're going to be absolutely yeah. crazy if you're just pulling something off yourself. Yeah, with with with, um, with one or two exceptions, maybe in minors, and be interesting to get your thoughts on that in a moment. Just on the supplements issue, two two anecdotes on my end. I've I've been contacted a few times in the last decade by athletes who failed tests, and 100% of the time they're blaming a supplement. So, okay, so then you say to them, you need to go and have your supplement tested because if you can show that that's the supplement you took the night or two nights, whatever, before the test, and that that supplement contained the banned substance and that you took every precaution to ensure that that supplement didn't contain a banned substance, then you can, as Clinton says, get exonerated. And it does happen. Mm. I'd love to know the proportion of times it works. It's not high, but it can. And one guy was a sub-elite sub veteran mountain biker. He, he claimed that. But the problem he had was the same as the MMA guy where the amount that was found in his urine was so high that when he had that supplement tested, he needed to find levels of this, the steroid hormone in that supplement that were like through the roof. <laughs> but he, he didn't. But he persisted with his case. and He ended up going to the appeal, having been given a two-year ban in South Africa, and they made it six years on appeal. So that's, so that's where it can at least backfire when you play that card. And then the other one, just to make people aware of how unbelievably random this world is, is there's a famous case, I won't say who it is, of an athlete who blamed drinking the wrong supplement. And he claimed that his, the person whose supplement he was drinking was using the banned substance. And, it's, and this guy testified on his behalf. He said, yes, I was using a supplement into which I was adding a banned product. Okay, So in other words, the supplement was legal, mm. but I was adding extra stuff to it, which was banned. So they send the supplement off for testing and they send the banned thing off to test it. Turns out that the banned drug has nothing in it. <laughs> so it's just water. But the supplement, <laughs> the supplement that was supposed to contain nothing banned contains the banned drug that was supposed to be in the banned drug. So he ends up, he ends up being positive and he gets banned because he's liable. But for an accidental contamination of a supplement, even though he was taking a banned drug, but that one was clean. You couldn't make this stuff up. I was going to say, what happens. Struck by lightning one day. Yeah, that's what happens. He's won the anti-lottery mm. because there is, like Clinton says, no regulation. Mm. And the same factory that makes the steroid hormones you can get online makes the legal supplements, but without any assurance that they're not accidentally mixing them. And I suspect some of them mix them on purpose because supplements generally don't work. Mm. Protein powders are generally not very effective. Steroids, on the other hand, are. And so if you want repeat customers, <laughs> it pays to actually put something in your supplement that actually helps. <laughs> yeah. And so I think they spike them on purpose sometimes. And within supplements, I mean, we talked about this before, there are batches that you yes. have to test. So one supplement might be fine and another batch might not be fine. So one supplement can be a different 
batch and have a completely different result, which is terrifying. Okay. That's why that's why I was suggesting that, you know, if you're a youngster and you want to just take something when you go for your ride or when you're training, you know, it's easy to take something off the shelf and you assume, and I agree that there is liability there for sure, but you would assume that you would get, if you go into a normal shop and buy an, a supplement, that it would probably, that it should be safe. And if I was a young talented uh you know pro sportsman it would be i'd feel quite uh hard done by if i suddenly was caught doping with something that i didn't necessarily believe was was real but um mm. yeah I, I guess liability is key but i do think there is some room for maneuver in that i mean Clinton, would you would you would you give us that or would you suggest that that, that we need to be a bit harder take a harder line on that yeah, I'm, I'm quite, uh, I'm okay taking a hard line with uh, what you might call the hardcore users. Uh, but I've seen the, the gray area I mentioned earlier does uh, revolve around uh, around this, uh, you know, protein shakes and, and, and things like that. Uh, no question. Of, of course, when you've got something that's uh, <clears throat> injected into a system, that's a, that's a different story altogether. And then the other one where I, I'm happy to give a pass to, I, sp I spoke in the book about a 14-year-old who got done with steroids. And I think if you're a minor, is is uh, somebody else's complicit in that. And that's an adult. It's a, it's a parent or it's a coach, it's a manager or something like that. Uh, but uh, supplements certainly muddy the waters. There's, there's no question about that. The sad thing about that case is that she was, that I think you're talking about, was the youngest steroid case in the world is is she still the youngest steroid case that you know of at the time she was wasn't in the world yes to my knowledge now, SAIDS is quite interesting because SAIDS annually put out a list of, of athletes who have been uh, been found to be positive and they're always names that are redacted and they're redacted because they're minors um, and I know of one or two rugby players who got caught as as minors and then got subsequently caught as seniors uh, I know a very prominent South African athlete who was caught as a minor, but it hasn't been reported. Um, and he's enjoyed a very high profile in his sport, uh, which in fact isn't rugby anymore. Uh, so there are cases like that. So my assumption is that is that she's very near to being uh, the youngest, but it may have been surpassed. Yeah, I don't know either. I looked for this actually in preparation. I do know that there are surveys of young athletes asking them to confess and the youngest in those surveys is 12. Wow. They've never been caught, so they don't count on the official record, but self can self admissions goes down to the age of 12. And then there've been some very high profile international cases last year in the winter Olympics, Camilla Valieva was the ice skater at yes. 15, blamed the doctor. Well, not she blamed, she said it was a accidental ingestion of the grandfather's medicines so it's, it's that mm. the one who blamed the doctor was in your olympics 2000 you alluded to earlier was uh radican the romanian gymnast won the all-around gold failed it for a stimulant a drug, drug test and said that she'd been given neurofen most listeners would know that as a common cold remedy which contains a banned substance and mm. that was then blamed on the doctor so she ended up having her medal taken away, but not liable for her own doping offense. Mm. Instead, the doctor got a fairly lengthy ban, um, costing Romanian Olympics that gold medal. So mm. that that can happen. And I'm sympathetic to those athletes. Mm. But you have to see, you have to have strict liability in the system because it's unprovable as to whether you took it on purpose or not. Mm. And so if you didn't have that strict liability, then you, the whole thing would collapse in on itself. Mm. Yeah. You know? My final question, Clinton, to you, 
based on everything we've discussed so far, who is winning the war? <laughs> no one, no one's winning the war. Um, it's a, it's more a case of cat and mouse. So I think you obviously have those who are doping, and there's always new developments in doping. You know, the sort of newer ones are called SARMs, um, and that's kind of quite fashionable. And then what happens is, uh, is the medical experts come along and they they try to shut it down. And then there's, you know, there's what they now talk about are designer drugs. Um, these things keep happening. Like I said, it's a game of, of cat and mouse, and just the numbers of, of athletes who keep getting caught, it's staggering. It, it, it remains um, extraordinarily high, obviously far too high. And, you know, so that's encouraging because they're getting caught, but the numbers suggest that um, people still feel the risk is worth it and they're taking the chances. So you can imagine those who are getting caught, how many are not getting caught? Yeah. Um, so while WADA have this, uh, this great fight, I think, you know, they do a great job it's often left to individual countries to, uh, to police what's going on. And uh, I think they're quite cavalier in places like uh, like Kenya. Uh, we aren't to, aren't to know what's happening in sort of smaller countries in Eastern Europe, although we have an idea given the, the Russian situation. Um, so the answer, and I'm sitting a little bit on the clinch, uh, so I don't think anyone's winning. Yeah, so a couple of points on that. Um, many years ago, there was a Easter around Michael Shermer used to write a piece in scientific American called the skeptic. And he's a very keen cyclist and he wrote one on doping and he ended up applying game theory, you know, from economics to the doping situation. And he was saying that to not dope would be irrational. And he says, it's a rational decision to dope because the rewards are so large and the risk is so low. And the risk is low for two reasons. One is the likelihood of being tested and caught is very low. And number two is when you are caught, the sanction isn't hard enough, high enough. Mm -hmm. And so he worked out and he showed this he used economics theory that I don't fully understand. But he ended up showing that until you change that balance, you won't change the incentives to dope. So that's why people dope. What, what's missing from the debate, in my opinion, is that they don't really have a true idea of the doping prevalence. And so when they have any sport or any federation, when they report 3.4% of all our tests were positive, that has no meaning because they don't know what it should have been. It's a known unknown. <laughs> mm. Now, there are some methods that you can use to try and establish it, like surveying athletes, and there are some nifty little statistical adjustments you can use, and you can you can look at the biological passports, and you can, you can say, okay, only 1% of these are abnormal, but 25% are dodgy. So with some confidence, we can say the problem is bigger than we're detecting. Mm. But instead, what happens is, and this happened last year in cycling, is the president will come out and say, we're doing really well because we haven't had any positive tests. You say, that's actually a sign that you're doing terribly badly mm. because you're assuming you shouldn't have had any positive tests. Most onlookers would say you should have some. And so having zero mm. is a sign of underperformance. Mm. But nobody knows where that bar should be and therefore they can't interpret what is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? So that's, that's going to continue to, I think, hold anti-doping back in a significant way and what it points to i think and this is my question to you it's a long question is in your discussions especially with sades and you've been quite complimentary of them and certainly they've done a good deal of investigative work to target their testing do they feel that they get the necessary investigative support or are they still reliant on testing to do this because testing to me has been shown to be relatively ineffective Whereas investigation seems to be what uncovers doping. 
very good question. And I put I put it to Khalid Khalant about the level of testing, and he said, you know, how much is enough? Uh, you know, he said yes, it's enough, and it isn't enough. Um, and he's often hauled before Parliament to explain uh, numbers, um, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and what I'm encouraged by is they have, I think it's a former Hawks police officer. So Hawks is obviously the uh, specialist police investigations arm. So they have a former Hawks uh, officer on board where they do these, these kind of investigations you talk of, um, which, is, which I think is, is fantastic because mm. you know, they, they don't necessarily have the means otherwise to be able to pursue uh, often quite shady characters and quite organized uh, crime syndicates, uh, no question. Um, the other thing Khalid Khalant uh, from Said said to me, which is interesting, he reckons our rate of testing positive is higher than any country in the world, uh, which, which for me was, was quite alarming. So that's, that's obviously the rate, uh, the rate at which we're testing and how many come back as, as positive as well. Um, but I do think that that aspect of, of Intel um, is vital and they are using it. But, um, but even, uh, yeah, SAVE effectively operates uh, with, with a government grant, so their funding is limited. Yeah, but even that, even that stat of like positive tests returned or test positivity, let's say they test 100 athletes and 17% are positive. I compare that to UK, Italy, Kenya, and it's in the single percentages, right? So we say, oh, that's bad in South Africa. It could be that we're just smarter about testing and we use intelligence more effectively so that you don't waste as many tests as they do overseas. And I've got no doubt that a number of countries test athletes to pad the numbers. You know, they'll test athletes with no intention of catching them, knowing that they're not going to get anything. Pad the numbers, produce one or two positives, make it look like they're doing enough, but they don't really want to address the biggest problems, you know, where they so there's no there's no will there's no real appetite to go after them so that that to me continues to be a problem you should write a column called the cynic <laughs> yeah or the realist i call the we cynic, the cynic. <laughs> or the realist it's a spectrum <laughs> depending on what day you catch me on did you did you come across anything in the book that you think sage didn't know like did you find anything out that they weren't already aware of i suppose it's hard to know but yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'm just thinking. Um, I don't think so. And in fact, I was alerted to several cases I was unaware of. I, yeah. think, I think they have a reasonably good handle. Um, but equally, I think a lot of what they discover doesn't make its way into the public domain. Um, right. Things that are, are going on, athletes they are cooperating with. I mean, there's a case now of a very prominent athlete who's turned whistleblower. And he, he, he goes back and forth and he's trying to get his band reduced almost on a monthly basis. Just, and so he gives a little bit of information. He says, what am I getting? So a lot of that stuff goes on behind the scenes. But I don't think anything overly dramatic. The one thing uh, which is very interesting and quite uniquely South African, I know they've been hauled over the coals for testing more black athletes than white athletes. And one of the, one of the smart MPs turned around and said, why are you making our black athletes look bad? This kind of thing, which is obviously absurd, um, because there's no sort of racial uh, dimension to testing at all. Um, and this goes. And what I will say is that uh, you know, in the defence of of some of the, uh, I remember Ludwig Mamabolo, the, the, the 
comrades right now, what he spoke about is he said, listen, we don't have access to education. You know, all we do is, is we, we eat and we train and we run and we don't have laptops, we don't, you know, we're not connected to the web, those kind of things. So you do have those kind of uniquely South African situations, which, which I guess you do have to take into consideration. Yeah, I guess the reason I asked that I was getting at is, do anti-doping authorities make maximal use of whistleblowers and informants? You know, are they are they adopting the right approaches and the right incentives to try and discover more? And it's often bemused me why they don't go more aggressively after the supply chain than the athletes. And that's a global problem, like the entourage, as they call it now in water terminology. An athlete's not doping in isolation at that level. So whether it's a tennis player, an athlete, rugby, whatever it is, if you came down harder on the team around the person, it feels to me it might be more effective than just the athlete. But whenever I see these positive cases, it's always just one guy who's taking the bullet for the rest of the team. Well, what can you what, what can you do to the supply chain? You can obviously ban the athlete, but if you well, find out who's dealing it, what does it, what does something like the South African anti-doping guys t- do against well, somebody who might be a supplier? So I mean, at its at its furthest extreme, Russia is an example of what gets done mm-hmm. eventually because the whole country got banned. <laughs> Yeah, And a smaller scale, like we've spoken here on this podcast about Kenya, and you say, all right, is Kenya going to get a blanket exclusion from World Athletics Champs? Maybe that's not entirely fair, but that's where I'd want to see if 80% of those Kenyan cases are coming from athletes managed by one agent, coached by one coach. That, to me, is grounds to go after the whole squad and ban all of them, all of them because then you shift the incentives more strongly so that you start to say to innocent athletes, you best speak up here because if you don't speak up, you're going to be (laughs) caught up in the crossfire of your doping colleagues. So you're trying to encourage, and I suppose you can create like chaos this way, but it just seems like that would maybe create more channels for information and informants that would then do more on on testing. You know what I mean? Like seems quite harsh. (laughs) I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's equally harsh when you lose medals and titles to people who are doping. I yeah, mean, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been fascinating chatting to you. Just for those of, uh, of our listeners that are overseas, can they get the book overseas or is it available as an ebook somewhere? Yes, indeed, it is available via Amazon. So if you have a Kindle, you can, uh, you can do so electronically. And uh, unfortunately, it's not available in bookshops overseas, it's, it's available locally. Uh, but happily, my Kindle is, is a way to go if you are overseas. Right. So that's the book, Guns and Needles, A Journey into the Heart of South African Sport and Steroid and Drug Culture. It really is a fascinating book. And I've mm. I've sort of scanned through most of it and read about half of it. And it really is a great read and fascinating just to – and it's not just about – what I love about the book is it's not just about drugs. It's almost the history of the sport in South Africa. So for those of the listeners that are here in South Africa, I would definitely think if you're if remotely interested in South African sport, it's a great book to read. So, Clinton, well done on the book, and uh, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.